Hey friends, it's so good to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors of Restored Temecula. I want to welcome you from wherever you're tuning in. And uh, this morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're tuning in, I have the privilege of continuing our series called Jesus Is, where we've been working through the Gospel of John. And we're getting to the end. We're in chapter 18. I think we've got a couple chapters left. And I'm excited to open up the text this morning, afternoon, evening, and, uh, and share what I feel like God has been putting on my heart through this text. And so I want to pray real quick before I dive in. I want to invite you to pray wherever you are, that God would really speak to you, would just speak to us through this powerful text that, uh, that he's given us. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Join me. I want to thank you for this powerful uh, word from Scripture that we are going to unpack today. I thank you for Jesus, who is amazing, who does unexpected, incredible things that really leave us in wonder and in awe at what kind of man is this? Uh, and, and so I, I really do pray for like a sense of awe and wonder at Jesus, at his goodness, at his mercy, as we explore this text and really get a better sense of our own weakness, our own frailty as human beings, as people who are part of this world that is fallen, that's broken, of which we're a part, but that also we're so deeply loved that Jesus came uh, for us. So I pray for encouragement, for refreshment, for everyone that's tuning in and for myself, even as I preach, for joy, for peace and all the good things that you want to give us. God, would you help us to receive them uh, through this text today? God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to start off this morning by uh, revisiting something that happened about 10 years ago. So in 2010, uh, there was a major oil spill off the coast of Louisiana. There was this this oil rig called the Deepwater Horizon that actually had a huge explosion. And it was off the coast of, yeah, off the coast of Louisiana, Louisiana like I said. And so it was a, just a major disaster. Uh, there was an explosion that took the lives of 11 men. Uh, there was an oil slick that resulted from, from this disaster that actually the oil slick was the size of the state of Florida. If you can imagine that for a second, how big and huge that was. Um, it, this oil slick obviously, it devastated the marine life in the area and it just crushed the local economy down there in the Gulf. It really deeply impacted their tourism industry among other things. Um, but when I think back to that oil spill, which I actually had to spend time researching and getting to know for my job at the time, um, I remember kind of like what a lot of people remember, there was just the, the pictures, the videos, the images on, on the news of the fiery inferno at the sea. There's the video uh, feed of like the, the well at the bottom where like the oil was actually leaking out of. They kept working on it, trying to seal it and stuff. Um, there was the, just the nightmarish fallout for the employees of that rig and their families. Those are the, the, the things that most people probably think about when they think about the Deepwater Horizon. Now this week in, in particular, for whatever reason, this is 10 years ago, I'm no longer at that job, it, it's just been coming to mind regularly. And I've been thinking about this event and I keep thinking about the part, one part specifically of this event, which is that all the oil from underwater, it all floated to the top, to the surface. 210 million gallons. Now please hear me, I'm not anti-oil or pro-oil, that's not the point of what I'm talking about today. Um, the point is actually that the oil and water, they, they, they don't mix, they, they separate. And I've just been chewing on it and thinking about it. And it, to me, it felt like a fitting analogy. Uh, this text, it's, we're gonna see in this text today that pride and following Jesus are kind of like oil and water. 
they don't mix. They actually separate. And kind of like much like that oil off the coast of, of Louisiana, it, it rose to the surface and it kind of began to decimate the, the communities around there and it, it kind of destroyed uh, marine life. It took lives. So it's kind of the same thing, like pride, our pride, that kind of comes from deep within it. It really has the potential, if it's not dealt with, to, to really decimate communities and even snuff out the spiritual life and vitality that God desires for us to flourish in community. Oil and water don't mix and neither do pride in following Jesus. And as I've been thinking about this, um, this analogy, you can see oil rising to the ocean surface and therefore you can actually begin to work to stop the spill. So I remember um, they would release, uh, when Deepwater Horizon happened, they would release these things called dispersants. They're chemical agents that they basically help to break up the oil slick into very small droplets, which dilute throughout the water. Um, they were trying to drill a relief well. There are these different things that you could actually do when, when there's an oil spill, if you know what's happening. Oftentimes though, um, we don't know when there's pride within us. We don't see it. Pride is deceptive. It, it, it hides from us. It lies to us. And really, like it says, pride is everywhere except in here, in our own hearts, which is not true. And too often it remains unaddressed. So what happens? We're, we're sort of like a, like a well that's just leaking oil and, it, and it's poisoning us and the environment around us. And we're mostly unaware. Now, sometimes we get a glimpse into the consequences of pride, right? And we kind of see the carnage of relationships, like carnage in relationships. That's typically how we know. What do I mean? We see the brokenness in relationships. We see um, within ourselves or others impulsivity, uh, anger that sometimes is explosive, like harshness or cruelty, uh, minimizing or downplaying you know, our responsibility in conflict, shifting the blame on other people, um, coercing, controlling, manipulating, pressuring others, or, you know, avoiding people, um, despair, which is sort of like the flip side of pride. Uh, it's like deflated pride, essentially. Um, sometimes it's like being consumed with fear and with anxiety, being controlled by the opinions or wishes of other people, not being able to say no, and the list goes on and on and on. But when we're there, when we see those things, it's sort of like, the oil has been spilling for a while, and now there's a more intensive response that's required and a lengthy cleanup process ahead for us as disciples, as communities, right? So just as oil destroys when it spills into the ocean, so pride destroys when it spills out into the community. That's what I'm saying. If it's not dealt with, pride leads to some form of death. Now today we're going to explore a passage where we get a window into a form of pride that we must deal with if we want to follow Jesus together and experience the fullness of life, of joy, of freedom, of purpose, and the love that Jesus came to offer to the world. If we want that, we have to deal with the pride that I'm going to talk about today that's flowing out of this text. So if you have a Bible, turn with me over to John uh, chapter 18, verses 28 to 38. The verses will be right here. And now the context real quick, Jesus is on trial. He's going to be crucified soon, but really it's more like the world is on trial. Uh, the world represented by 
the, the Jewish leaders, the insiders, the religious insiders, and then Pilate, kind of like the irreligious outsider, the world, is on trial to see how the world will respond to King Jesus. The verdict is going to be clear and undeniable. Let's see how this trial unfolds. So verse 28, John 18, says this. It says, Then they, the religious leaders, uh, led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they might have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. 29. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If you weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. 31. Pilate told them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And then they said, It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. So in other words, the Jews were saying, If you're going to kill an innocent man, you do it by the book. Everybody knows that. So what's going on? It, it's, this is kind of, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to put it into words, but what's happening is the Jewish leaders are essentially lying and they are deceiving their way into a situation where they can have the guy that they want killed murdered. And they want to do it by the book. <laughs> That's why they, they're, they're saying it's not legal for us to do it, but Pilate, you can do it. So they want to do it by the book in a sense, but they're lying and deceiving their way to do that. And they want to make sure that it doesn't, however it plays out, they want to make sure it doesn't make them late to the church potluck. That's sort of what's happening here, if you can believe it, which takes a lot of skill. So they were cunning and shrewd, but there were a lot of other things that we'll talk about later as well. Verse 32. Oh, this is important. And then they said this, so the religious leaders said this, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. So in other words, the Roman... There, Jesus had to die on a Roman execution rack on a cross. He had to be lifted up. That's what Jesus himself said. There's actually an Old Testament passage that talks that foreshadows what Jesus did, where they lifted a snake on a pole, and everyone who, who looked to the snake on the pole was healed. And so Jesus is now going to be lifted up off the earth, and everyone who trusts in him, who looks to him, who believes in him, will find healing for their sins and renewal for their souls. So Jesus had, the Romans had to kill him. Now the Jews didn't know that this was all part of God's plan, but they were playing right into God's plan. But that's what's happening here. I'm trying to help bring out some of this stuff because if you've been in church for a while, if you, if you haven't, by the way, so glad that you're tuning in. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably read these verses before, but I want to make sure we understand how there's complex dynamics at play here, political uh, implications for all of this, but really it's God's hand that's working through the whole thing to bring about the results that he intends in fulfillment of the scriptures for the salvation of the world, including you and me. So this is, this is good stuff. Painful to read and understand what's actually happening, but it's the best thing that we could read. It's good news for us if we really understand it. Verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? 35. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate said. He was a Roman. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is my kingdom... 
is not from here. So Pilate really cares about making sure that there is no political uprising or upheaval in which the Jewish people who are under Roman occupation would take this opportunity. This is sort of like a big feast day where they're celebrating God's deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. So this is a moment that's tense. They're under occupation. This could be a moment of uprising. And here someone is brought to Pilate who they're saying, hey, he's, he's calling himself a king. In other words, he might be trying to incite some kind of treason against Rome, some kind of sedition. So Pilate's trying to figure out what's going on here. Who are you? Are you a king? And Jesus is, tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. My people would be fighting if it were. We'd be, you know, there'd be a violent uprising at your hands right now, at your doorstep, if it were. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this world. It doesn't look like this world. It doesn't originate like from this world. It doesn't share the values of this world. It's not violent. Verse 37, you are a king then, Pilate asked. So Pilate's trying to trap Jesus to get him to, to own it. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. Jesus won't be trapped. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Verse 38, what is truth? Said Pilate. Oof. Fantastic interaction. Can't get into all the details. Um, but here's, here's the key. We see manifestations of pride in this text that led people to reject Jesus. Okay, and I wanna, just, I wanna try to quickly answer two questions. One, how did the religious leaders and Pilate reject Jesus? Two, how do we receive and not reject Jesus? How did the leaders and Pilate reject Jesus? How do we receive and not reject Jesus? So number one, how did the leaders and Pilate reject Jesus? So I'm gonna give you the answer right off the bat. If you're taking notes, they rejected Jesus by not facing the truth about themselves. They rejected Jesus by not facing the truth about themselves. Jesus told them all the truth. So let's go ahead and look. We'll, we'll zoom in on the religious leaders. I want to read some, some words out of Matthew. We're in John, but the Gospels tell a, complete, a more complete picture of who Jesus is. And so Matthew uh, gives us a story that John does, and I want to read it to you because I think it's important. Matthew 23, verses 23 to 28 say this. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders. And Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! So this is all happening before the point of the story that we just read. So this is beforehand. Jesus is warning them. He's telling them the truth. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint and dill. So basically like you, you tithe out of your spice rack. That's how scrupulous you are. You give out of that. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. What does that mean? Uh, a gnat? That would make if you if you ingested a gnat that would make you ceremonially unclean. It would make you impure, and there was ways to become pure. You like you know depending on what it was. You took a bath. You took a, a week or two off, and then you were considered clean, and you can go back in uh, into the holy spaces. 
But the, the Pharisees, they were so careful, like, you know, they're drinking their wine. We want to make sure there's no gnat in our wine, so we'll, you know, strain it out. But swallow a camel, which is also an unclean animal. And so Jesus is saying, you, you, you pay really close attention to small things, but you miss the big stuff completely in the process. And you're blind. Pride. It's another way of saying, religious leaders, you're proud. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. So in other words, you love money and you do what you want, but you're real careful about what you look like. You're self-willed, self-made. Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, deal with what's going on inside, so that the outside of it may also become clean. Deal with the greed, the love of money, and the willingness to do what you want. Deal with that stuff first, the important stuff. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like white, whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. So being around um, corpses would make you impure. So in other words, everything looks good on the outside. On the inside, though, there's contamination. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I should have just let Jesus say it. Say it. He said it better. So what's the point? These religious leaders, this is important, so please pay attention. These same religious leaders who said serving God was their priority, in reality, their priorities were their careers, their politics, and preserving their way of life. Jesus told them the truth. We see that with the people who handed him over to Pilate. That's what they cared about. But the religious insiders, okay, they refused to face the truth about themselves. Even after Jesus repeatedly called them to account, he told them the truth and he gave them opportunities to repent, to change their minds about who they were in the story and the truth about themselves. If they had humbly reevaluated their life, their priorities, their values, and their choices in light of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he said, they might have actually humbled themselves, repented, and been on the front lines of the new thing that God was doing in Christ. But instead, they, they chose to proudly protect what mattered most, their careers, their politics, their way of life, their reputation amongst the people. And they did it all under the cloak of being biblically faithful, and they did it within a community of faith. And they rejected Jesus, though, at a heart level to do their own thing and to follow their own desires. Friends, this should make us shudder. This is terrifying because we can do the same things. We're not better than the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the people that turned Jesus over. We're not better than them. We're of the same, we're made of the same stuff. Inside, we have the same tendencies within us. The temptations that are common the temptations that we face are common to everybody. So we get to learn from them. We get to learn from the pride that they exhibited in their lives in the face of the truth about Jesus so that we can learn how to respond differently. Let me give you an illustration of what this, an example of what this looked like in, in my own life. Uh, I've been thinking about this and there was, I've had, this is far from the only example, this is just a really prominent one that I can remember. Um, I remember that when Heather and I, my wife Heather, my now wife Heather and I, 
we're dating, uh, one of the big questions that we had to sort out pretty early on was, what are we going to do about belonging to a church community? We, we didn't meet within the same church community. She had hers, I had mine. We weren't quite on the same page. We're trying to figure that stuff out. And, uh, and eventually I came over to her community and I had a lot of opinions and ideas about the way things should be run in the church based on other experiences that I had and the church I was coming from. And so I remember I would sit there, uh, you know, on a Sunday or whatever, and I would just be mad, like inwardly mad. I'd be like kind of furious. Why? Uh, because I had a sense of like how I thought things should be said, how things should be preached, etc., etc. I just had it all figured out. I had it all sorted out, um, not based on any experience, but just based on my own way of looking at things. And so in my heart, I was full of pride of pride. And so one day I was like, I can't handle it anymore. I'm calling a meeting. So I call a meeting with, with the lead pastor. I came in with a challenge. I was going to basically point out, hey, here's the ways in which you're not doing what I think you should be doing. And by the end, I walked away challenged uh, because I was lovingly and gently told, you know, hey, your knowledge exceeds your obedience. Your knowledge exceeds your obedience. And that I could learn from anyone who was, was genuinely preaching from the scriptures, whether it was the style that I would use or not. I was challenged to be humble and to be teachable and to assume that I didn't know it all. And so this was a life-changing experience for me. Why? Because the man was right. He had a point. I came, <laughs> I went from walking into the, into the, the meetings with like a very critical kind of spirit, looking at the way things went, kind of critiquing and judging. I went from critical to then curious. What do I mean by that? I, was, I became curious, like, what's God going to do through, through this community? And how is he going to change me as we open up the word of God, as we're taught, as we talk through our lives? I went from critical to curious and teachable. And by the end, I can genuinely say that I was going into every meeting excited because I knew that I had something to learn, that God wanted to teach me something. And so that was, that was really important for me. That was when, when pride was met with grace in my life. I was theologically proud and I needed to be challenged because that pride was, was destructive. It was putting impediments and roadblocks into relationship with the people in the body of Christ that I needed the most. How about you? Are there ways in which it's just hard to face the truth about yourself? Maybe like pride is blinding, making it difficult to see clearly. Let me give you some, some categories. Maybe for you, it could be theology like it was for me. My theology... I'm proud about my theology, so it blinds me to the fact that I'm not all that loving or teachable. What about you? Is it your career? Um, or is it your politics? Is it, is it, is it the, polit or the politics that you hold to uh, feel really justified and right and this is the way, but it actually leads you to be potentially divisive or dismissive of other people who see things differently than you do? Um, what about preserving your way of life? This is what the, the Pharisees were doing, like maintaining status and appearance in the community. Or maybe it's a need for approval or security. 
that's making it hard to see the truth about yourself because that's what you're living for. That's what matters most. Maybe it's comfort or feeling in control or feeling powerful or anything else that's basically causing you to neglect the weightier matters of following Jesus and growing in a merciful, gracious love for God and for people. What's getting in the way of that? I want you to, to remember what we started with. Pride and following Jesus do not mix like oil and water. They don't mix. Uh, pride left unchecked will eventually contaminate your soul and the lives of those around you. So again, the leaders and Pilate rejected Jesus by not facing the truth about themselves. Number two, how do we receive and not reject Jesus? How do we receive and not reject Jesus? So on the one hand, there was a refusal, right, to face the truth about, this is for, the, for Pilate and the leaders to face the truth about themselves. Now on the other hand, we receive Jesus by facing the truth about ourselves and about Jesus through the gospel, through the good news of who he is, what he has done, and who we now are in light of his love for us. So I want to read these verses again. John 18, verses 36 to 37. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is the king, and in his kingdom, truth and not pride reigns. Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And the truth, which can be unpacked in so many ways, I want to just phone in on one. The truth is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. When this is happening, at this point in time, the, the, the Jewish leaders were really concerned about not being defiled so that they could celebrate the Passover. It was a long celebration. And they were, you know, concerned about that, not so much concerned about killing a guy, but whatever, that's, you know, that's the first point. We're in the second point now. But Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So I love this quote. Here's the truth. We were so sinful that he had to die, but we are so loved that he was glad to die for us. Listening to his voice, it's not just allowing sound waves to enter into your outer ear and travel through the ear canal into your eardrum and on and on. It's very much more to do with grappling with who Jesus is, what he has done, who that makes us to be and learn how to trust and obey his gospel, become his disciples, which again, I'll just quickly define. We define it as enjoying Jesus obeying Jesus and operating like Jesus in every area of life. That is what we want to be about as a church community. That is why we exist. We want to have communities, gospel communities that come together. You know, we, Lord willing, we'll gather on Sunday soon and, and be a people who are learning to grow as disciples and make disciples. That's who we want to be. We want to listen to his voice. We want to be people of the truth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it looks like loving people like Jesus loved us. So it's, it's, we want to be marked by self-giving love, by forgiveness, by generosity, 
by service, by justice, by love, by mercy, by making peace, being peacemakers, and on and on. We want to look like Jesus in this world and invite people into this self-giving love that we have received and give that away freely. We want to love others as he has loved us. Now, when we face the truth about ourselves, about what we love and what we care about the most, what our priorities are, uh, what we give our time and our money and our attention to, really what we live for, if, if we do that work and then we find out that there are areas where it's not Jesus that we really live for, and we're all going to find that, by the way, it should not be like a weird thing. This should be a normal thing, a very regular thing that we do because we all, we get entangled in sin very easily. Hebrews talks about that. If we find that that's true of us, then we have a beautiful way through. It's called confession and repentance before the Lord. I want to read you a quote. This is by Jack Miller, uh, amazing man. He basically discipled Tim Keller, if you know who Tim Keller is, a pastor in New York City who's written a ton of books and has been very helpful to our family of churches through his writings and teachings. So Jack Miller says this, I'm quoting. He said in a book, he said, Honest prayer unmasks your real need and puts you in the presence of a rich Christ who wants to meet you as you really are, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 317. Again, we're talking about confession and repentance as we discover the truth about ourselves and find out, well, it's not Jesus that we love most, it's something else. We learn how to honestly pray and confess. And Jack Miller says something I thought was so insightful. He says, it can be a struggle to even name your sin before God. You fumble through it because you name you, the name you give your sin often expresses a desire to even avoid it, to even avoid talking about it. So for example, you pray, Lord, forgive me for not loving Mrs. X or so-and-so. But in your heart, you can still see the obnoxious image of Mrs. X and the vision does not exactly attract your compassion. In other words, you're still bitter. And the kind of sentimentalized image of Jesus, which floats through your mind, it has no power to vanish the evil thoughts that you're having about this woman. Jack Miller goes on. He says this. This is, this is where grace comes in. Then the true Jesus, who sits at the Father's right hand, he begins to do his work in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts. Suddenly you realize through the Holy Spirit that you have been petty. Now you pray differently with a kindled conscience. Holy Father, I have not loved Mrs. X, but that's only part of my sin. In my heart, I despised her. So in your confession to God, you fight to name your sin and to give your sin its right name. So no downplaying, dismissing, call a spade a spade, being honest, telling the truth about ourselves. Then you hand it over to Christ by faith and taste the happiness of guilt forgiven, Psalm 32, 1, and find the deliverance from hypocrisy that comes through honest confession, Psalm 32, verses 2 to 5. What you have now is almost beyond words, but it has the feel of clear shining after rain, of sunshine after tears, in other words, grace for sinners, and you have felt grace make a clean sweep of your repentant heart. God loves you where you are, not where you have been pretending to be. God loves you where you are, not where you've pretending, been pretending to be. This is a natural transition now to start loving other sinners where they are, not where they pretend to be or where you think they should be. 
very much like I was loved right where I was at, not where I should have been, which is I should have been more obedient and thoughtful and humble uh, because of the knowledge that I had. I was met right there with grace. It's beautiful. So I'll finish the quote. So now to use an expression coined by Bill Milliken in his book, Tough Love, little conversions. I love that. Little conversions must happen many times to the Christian after first turning to the Lord. Not, not those who have not yet decided to follow Jesus, but to the Christian, there must be many little conversions. In these life and death battles, he calls them, you must begin to understand that you personally must have your dirty feet washed daily by Jesus. Okay, John 13, we went through that several months back. Jesus got down and washed his disciples' feet, which was a picture, among other things, not just of service, which it was, but also the way that through his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus was going to wash away our sins. And he would get down into the messiest, ugliest, worst parts of our lives and bring cleansing and healing and wholeness. We must have Jesus wash our feet daily. And that you need daily to get down on your knees and wash the feet of other disciples. Jesus did that. He left us an example to follow so that we could then love and serve and wash and cleanse through the gospel, through his grace, other people as well, just like he did to us. I want to close with this. Deepwater Horizon, that oil spill off the coast of Louisiana, I was thinking about the oil and the water, the separation. Um, there was one more part that I was thinking of this week, which was the painstaking process that people undertook to actually wash and cleanse the birds that were covered in oil. Maybe you've seen a picture of that or not. It was fairly famous, pictures of birds covered in oil. It's kind of a sad, um, sad reality with oil spills. But let me tell you about the process that they actually used. So for the birds that survived, so there were bird doctors who showed up and they would first draw blood from the bird. They would weigh the bird and check the bird's vitals. And then they had to rest for 24 hours. I'm giving you a, a window into the cleansing process. Um, they did more tests. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the bird could actually survive rehab. And so when they, they determined, hey, this bird has a fighting chance they would move the bird into the washroom, which was a huge space that was filled with tubs and dish soap. Dish soap, that's what they used. Lots and lots of the sudsy stuff. The International Bird Rescue has seen several new cleaning agents and inventions. There's even like a bird washing machine out there. Um, but so far they've just, they've worked with Dawn dish detergent, just the simple stuff that works. And so the soap, it like hits its cleansing peak at water temperature between like 106 and 108 degrees. That matches the bird's like typical body temperature. Once the bird's in the water though, there's no scrubbing because that would ruffle feathers, um, literally. <laughs> Instead, the water is swished around the bird and that allows the detergent to slowly lift oil from the feathers and then a gentle hosing frees the head feathers of residue. An individual bird can require multiple tubs of water and the rehab center can use up to 1,500 gallons of water an hour. So a lot, there's a lot that goes into it to actually wash and cleanse these birds. Now the, washer, they, the washers, they try to get all that goo off in one session if they can. They sniff the bird's feathers uh, up close as they rinse. They have to get close to the mess. 
If you can still smell product, you haven't gotten it clean enough, is what one of these guys said. And so after the wash, the, the volunteers hose the birds down, and um, this is kind of where the magic happens. All of a sudden, those downy feathers, they start to fluff up and they start to repel water. Then they dry the birds, and then uh, after that, they're not even done yet. The birds are moved into rooms that are full of pools that kind of stimulate, or simulate open water, I should say. So they start off in these pools, and then pretty soon you'll see the birds staying in the pools all the time. Now that's when you know that they're getting basically ready to go back into the sea. Even after that whole process, they still need to be in the pool for 72 hours before they're released. Man, it's a messy, labor-intensive process. It's, it's a process of love to cleanse these birds from the, the oil that has contaminated them. And it felt like just such a fitting picture to me of what it's going to be like for us as disciples to essentially take the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and apply it to the messy and broken part of each other's lives. We're going to have to get close enough to where we can smell the stink on each other uh, to make sure that the gospel is doing the work. The gospel always, Jesus does his work. The gospel does the work. The spirit does the work. It's more like, are we... Are we allowing him to do what he wants to do in us? And we have to get close enough and smell the mess in order to actually know if that's happening. Now, hopefully you see now that this is, it's messy, but it's beautiful. Those birds that were washed and were cleansed, they were able to, you know, the ones that survived were able to go back into the wild. And birds are actually beautiful, like whatever, bird brain, but they're beautiful creatures. And how much more for the creatures made in God's image, human beings, that Jesus thought were worth dying for. Is it worth it to get down on our hands and knees and scrub each other's feet? Amazing. Um, I did want to say one thing real quick. This process is beautiful. It's messy. And there are going to be times when you're going to desire to help someone and they're going to misinterpret what you're doing. So, let me give you a quote. I thought this was so interesting. This was from the, the bird washing people, the bird rehabilitators. Um, there was a question that was asked that was like, do the animals know that you're helping them? And, and they said this, they're wild animals and they're highly stressed by handling and, and handling and being in captivity. So most likely they regard us as predators that are trying to eat them. Although some species like penguins and pelicans, they will act more friendly as they become accustomed to being fed fish by humans um, that allow them to feel comfortable in the presence of their caretakers. Um, they need flight space. They need flight space, they need space. Getting too close to them will create a situation that's stressful for them and often painful bites for the intruder. Handling and viewing, it's, it's, it's done in very careful ways. And there's gonna be moments uh, where we want to love and we want to care for people and it's going to stress them out and freak them out. And that's okay. And there might be even, mo even moments when you get bitten and that's okay. It hurts. I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying that it's not painful. But I'm just saying that in light of Jesus' work for us, in light of the cross, I think it's worth it to go through that. Because these are people that Jesus died for, that he wants to heal and cleanse by his blood. Is it worth it for you to be misunderstood as you pursue them in love? Personally, I want it to be for me. And I imagine it, you probably do want it to be for you as well. I want to just qu quickly read these verses. Psalm 32, 1 to 5. I mentioned them earlier. 
So I was reading the quote from Jack Miller. This is about the joy of forgiveness. This is the fruit. If we give ourselves to a life of lives of honesty, where we face the truth about ourselves, where we're honest in community, where we're willing to give and receive mercy and grace and care and pray for each other and confess sin and repent. This is, this is the overflow. This is the result. I want to read these words, Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. This is out of the NLT. Verse two, yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Complete honesty. Three, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Verse five, finally, I confess all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Verse 6, then here's the application. Therefore, let all of the godly pray to you when there is still time that, you may not, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place, and you protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Friends, there is joy for us. As a community, we, we can become a joyful community as we confess our sins to one another. We experience the healing grace of this Jesus who went to the cross for us, who died for us, who was raised for us so that we can have new life. And I just want to encourage you today, don't let the pride that would otherwise contaminate your soul and pollute the community, don't let that go unaddressed. There is a way. It's messy. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward but it's totally worth it. You can be restored and made well and healed whenever you sin. I wanna leave you with that. I wanna encourage you now, we're gonna go into worship, to worship and praise the King who was lifted up high so that your sins might be forgiven on his cross and you could walk into the joy of forgiveness like Psalm 32 talks about. Grace and peace to you, church. We love you, we miss you, and we hope to see you soon.